Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I am presenting to you today a very sad podcast on the terrorist attacks that hit the European capital this morning. I woke up in a hotel just on top of Malbake Station this morning and uh, went into the metro station at eight o'clock and got what turned out to be the last Eurostar out of Brussels this morning before the terrorist attacks struck. More than 30 people are believed to have been killed and dozens injured in the twin attacks at Brussels International Airport and the Malbec uh, metro station. The attacks on the metro station seem to have taken place just w- within an hour of, of my having uh, gone through it. The Islamic State um, has said that it was behind the attacks in a statement that was issued today. Belgium has raised its terrorist level, terrorist alert level to the highest level. Metros and airports are closed. Three days of national mourning have been declared. The Belgian police are appealing for help in identifying a possible suspect. And the debate about the European war on terror has come back into the centre ground once again. I'm joined by three ECFR experts to help us make sense of this. First up is Anthony Dworkin, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and he's been leading a lot of our work on human rights, democracy, justice, and particularly on the, the European reaction to terrorism. Secondly, is uh, up is Nick Whitney, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, co-director of our European Power Programme, also used to run the European Defence Agency in Brussels. And finally, uh, from Paris, we have uh, Manuel Lafon-Habnoui, who is a uh, head of the office in Paris, also a senior policy fellow, uh, but is somebody who's worked for a long time on, uh, on security and crisis management in the French Foreign Ministry. Anthony, do you want to kick off the debate and tell us um, what we know and, and what you think the, the big issues are that have been raised by these tragic events? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the clearest message from this terrible series of attacks um, coming, you know, so soon after the Paris attacks last November is, is simply that um, ISIS is capable and determined to attack repeatedly, um, mount these large-scale casualty attacks in European cities. And I think um, the evidence that's come out in recent days, first of all, following the arrest of Salah Abdeslam, who was picked up a few days ago in Brussels, um, he was the last survivor of the 10 men who carried out the Paris attacks. He's been on the run for a number of months, and he was finally tracked down. Um, but when the police picked him up in, in Brussels, they uncovered also evidence um, that he was involved in planning for future attacks. Um, despite that evidence, they weren't able to avert these attacks coming a few days later. And I think that shows a couple of things. First of all, it shows that the networks that ISIS has been able to establish and rely on within European capitals, um, particularly in Brussels, are pretty extensive, that they are 
these individuals are able to, to operate, to go to ground, um, to build up the kind of networks that they need to accumulate weapons, to make bombs. You know, all of this is happening in European cities, as it were, under the noses of our intelligence services. And um, it's unfortunate, but obviously true, that uh, Belgian intelligence and police were not able to penetrate these networks. Uh, the other thing that I think comes out very clearly, you know, there's been some speculation in earlier months about um, are we facing a threat from people in Europe inspired by ISIS? Um, it's now perfectly clear uh, from Paris and again from this that the degree of coordination and travel back and forth um, and planning and financing coming directly from ISIS into these European cities was very extensive. So I'm afraid it shows us both the, the seriousness of the threat, the level of communication, and it shows the challenge that we face in trying to deter these kinds of attacks, uh, which, after all, are, you know, there are a multitude of targets which are very difficult to police. Manuel, we, we took part in an equally sad podcast with you um, after the Paris attacks earlier in the year. What do you think this means for, for Europe? Everyone's calling for unity now after Brussels as they did after Paris. But what actually can other Europeans do and what do you think this means for the European project? I would say uh, two things. The first thing is it proved, I agree with Anthony, the seriousness of the threats and the fact that it's uh, ongoing. We cannot just hope uh, that it's too difficult for Daesh or other terrorist group to strike on European soil. Um, they've done it before and, and they're still able to do it. And uh, it's, <clears throat> it's hard to know whether all this was planned in advance or whether this is uh, the, the timing is also a reaction to the arrest of that last man of the Paris uh, commando. Um, but in any case, it does prove that they can strike in different places in Europe and that they can strike quite regularly. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the November attacks in Paris, but in Paris there have already been attacks uh, in January in 2015. And there have been several plots that have been foiled. Uh, so we know that the, the capability is there. Uh, the second um, takeaway, I think, uh, is precisely that um, we do not waste too many opportunities when we are in those uh, moments where we understand the, the need for solidarity and action that we do implement decisions that have been made before. And, and that has been a strong message from the French authorities uh, today. Uh, obviously, messages have begun with uh, the testimony of solidarity to the Belgian people and uh, the need for European solidarity in general. Uh, obviously, there was uh, in those official messages um, measures for national uh, uh, security uh, in terms of uh, more uh, police for transportation infrastructures or uh, more border control, etc. But there was also a call for implementing or adopting decisions that we know will help our security. There's one very controversial uh, decision uh, which is right now pending at the European Parliament, which is the adoption of... Uh, the PNR, Passenger's Name Record, which uh, would help uh, identify who is taking the plane or not. 
Um, that as the adoption of that uh, decision has been delayed at the European Parliament, and both the President and the Home Affairs Minister uh, have stressed today on the occasion of uh, the uh, Brussels attack that there was a need to move forward, for instance, on that measure. So, Nick, you, you've um, led a lot of our work on military options. So after the Paris attacks, um, there was a real kind of European war on terror that was launched. We were taking the fight to Daesh into the region. What do you think is going to happen now to this uh, European war on terror? Do you think it's going to be more uh, a focus on the kind of internal aspects that, that Manuel was talking about? Or is there going to be a big foreign policy element as well? Well, I think the the notion of um, embarking on a you know, yet more determined efforts to strike ISIS at source um, will be uh, a great temptation for, for Western politicians and, in my view, exactly the wrong thing to be doing. Um, the tragedy of today is not just the, the victims and their families and, and the impact on Brussels, which has been for years a remarkably sort of relaxed and open city, and I'm afraid it will no longer feel like that. In the way in which uh, naturally people have, have seized upon this as evidence of their, their different political points of view, um, we've had Trump in the United States saying that you know all American, um, all Muslims in America now need to be surveilled, and we will have plenty of voices saying this is all to do with the with the refugees and that these guys have been sneaking in um, as as part of the mass migrations into Southern Europe. Whereas, as Anthony was saying, I think it's. Um, I think it's pretty plain that we're dealing actually with people who are much more sophisticated than that and don't need to travel in rubber dinghies across the islands of, uh, of Greece in order to move freely around. So obviously the right response is to, is to get a lot more serious than we have been, or certainly some of the European countries have been, about uh, internal security and cracking down on these networks and monitoring people and um, uh, sharing intelligence. That's the that's the the great thing that has not been happening in Europe and which the, both the Paris and the Brussels attacks seem to have exposed that our intelligence sharing is not good enough. But to come back to what you actually asked me for, is it going to be useful if we now sort of drop more bombs on Raqqa? I think it's absolutely not. I mean, we have to bear in mind the whole time that this is a vicious ideology sustained by the myth that uh, Westerners are opposed to Islam and that if you let off... Uh, if you kill innocent people in Malbec, you're somehow defending Islam against the Crusaders. And to uh, to embark on uh, a lot more military activity in the Middle East would do nothing but to feed that narrative. We need to be, be tough, but be tough in smart ways, which means doing it domestically and, and not in the Middle East. So on the, the military dimension, of course, um, I, you know, I agree strongly with what Nick's saying. Um, I think inevitably there is a tendency to reach for the, the rhetoric and the language of war because it's a, a way of registering the seriousness of the threat, um, a threat which is at least partly orchestrated from outside, and it's a way of indicating how seriously we take the response and how we're mobilizing all our resources against it. and. Um, there is this also this idea which um, a number of European leaders have at least kind of um, gestured towards, which is that we can somehow disrupt um, ongoing plots through military action, 
directed at training camps in Syria or possibly now in Libya. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at everything that's come out about the, the background to the Paris attacks and then um, what we see again in Brussels, I think it shows that how far-fetched it is to think that this kind of action, uh, these precise plots can be disrupted by military action uh, in faraway countries. And I think really the th one thing that comes out quite strongly to me from the Brussels story is just what a long way there is, how far uh, European intelligence services have to go to build up intelligence and information about what's happening within these communities. Uh, now the the um, the Muslim community in, in Brussels centered around Molenbeek, um, primarily from uh, a lot of them from a, a Moroccan background, I think is is known to be one of the more tight-knit communities among these European cities. And yet, you know, it's, it's not alone. And I think it's really um, a big challenge to find out um, more about uh, what's going on as these plots develop, um, to tap into these kind of community support networks, which were clearly quite extensively involved in... Um, at least helping Salah Abdeslam um, go undercover and escape detection for these last few months, um, and uh, to be aware of the movement back and forth of the people coming from Syria and so on. So to me, that's the priority number one now, is to, to build up our intelligence, to, to try and find people within these communities who can give our own intelligence services an indication of what's going on. Um, and I think all of that effort, which is going to be hard, is, is nevertheless going to be much more important and fruitful than, than dropping more bombs. And of course, anything which seems to feed into this narrative of a kind of civilizational war um, may make that task harder. I, I also am quite dubious about the usefulness of the language of war. I understand why uh, political uh, figures would resort to it. It does convey seriousness, it does convey determination, it gives a sense of gravity and the, the magnitude of the events. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, shortcomings and drawbacks. And actually, uh, this is a discussion that has been ongoing uh, in France. Uh, there's including um, political debate about whether we are at war and whether we should say that we are at war. Parliament is divided uh, on the implication of that. Uh, it, I'm not sure it's the best way to think about what kind of police and jurisdictional action we need to take about, again, uh, against terrorism by saying that we are at war. Obviously, saying we are at war um, channels uh, the idea of a military response more than anything. Um, we also know that war is not necessarily the best friend of civil liberties. And in France, there's been a lot of discussions, including on citizenship and nationality after the November attacks. Um, and then by saying that we are at war, uh, we open the door to people who say that we are at war within our societies, within our nations, that there's a civil war uh, ongoing, which is not necessarily also... Um, the message of unity that uh, political figures would, would like and should like to, uh, to convey. 
Um, where I am less uh, maybe um, bold than uh, Nick and uh, Anthony is about the need for military action. If really the threat is coming from outside, uh, which is partly the case, as Anthony just said, then we should not refrain from military action if we think that it may um, be needed. Uh, and um, of course, we should be aware that military action will not solve the problem. We should be aware that military action uh, can also create more problems, which means that we shouldn't go for more military action uh, without a good reason to do that. And we should, in any case, not go for military action if we don't have a, a diplomatic or political accompaniment of that uh, military actions. I, I'm not suggesting that more bombs is the, the, the right response. But whether it is in uh, Iraq, uh, where we need to support uh, the Iraqi government, in Syria, where uh, my feelings are much more mixed, or uh, in Libya, where uh, may come to a point where we need to act, and there have been already some kind of limited action, we do need uh, to be able to act on uh, military grounds. We just need to be aware that just military action will just make the problem worse uh, if we don't have a, a political, if we don't work for a political solution to those crises. Uh, and, and that's one thing that the European should and could do um, out from this new terrorist attack is not just working on what we can do as Europeans within Europe in terms of uh, intelligence sharing or uh, judicial cooperation or police cooperation. I very much subscribe to all that. But also what can we do in terms of uh, foreign policy vis-à-vis uh, -vis Syria, vis-à-vis -vis Libya, um, by realizing that these crises are not just faraway crises. They're actually feeding into processes that eventually end with uh, terrorist networks being present on European soil. Yes, I, I agree with, um, with what you're saying. I think probably we don't disagree so much, but it's a useful corrective. Um, and I suppose the, the point, at least, that I was trying to make is that the, the place for the um, military action as a way of kind of disrupting um, plots that may already be in the process of being hatched is quite limited. Um, and I think, therefore, the way to think about the role for military action against these groups is precisely, as you say, as part of a kind of integrated approach. So where there is uh, groups that are on the ground that are trying to shrink the territory controlled by ISIS, uh, where there's a political process that might integrate the areas that they've seized back into the country, um, in these cases, I think there is a role. And another factor is that the part of the ideology and the recruitment of ISIS, I think, feeds on the idea of its kind of inexorable success. And therefore, if we can make it look like it's losing ground and losing territory, that may help to dent the appeal. Um, so in all of those respects, I do see a military role. Um, but those are situations where the military action is very much coordinated um, and part of a political process, as you say, and part of local forces on the ground. Um, and the danger in the more kind of isolated approach which the United States has followed in some countries 
um, in the years since 9-11 is, is one simply looks at these as a kind of counter-terrorism strikes rather than as part of a broader strategy. And that, I think, is a, a tactic which may have some short-term gains in terms of eliminating particular individuals, but I don't think has, has been shown to really get you very far in terms of um, eliminating the threats posed by the group or the ideology. So basically, um, these being clarified, um, I, I think it's important that the Europeans uh, do try to find a, a kind of a European way to deal with that on the international stage by the various means at their disposal, whether it's foreign policy or military action, etc., which precisely doesn't turn the European response into a uh, um, U.S.-style uh, war on terror, international war on terror. The, the risk is very big, I think, and bigger today than it was uh, already yesterday, that we just slowly slide into that kind of uh, approach, at least on the international stage, on the internal front, the situation are very different, but having a, a vision of the world where terrorism is the only threat, and it's a global war, it's not local crisis, and we have a cross-cutting approach where fighting terrorism is uh, is the priority, and uh, and we give opportunities to many other problems and threats to um, to survive and uh, and get away with it just because of our strong focus on uh, on terrorism. I think I would just interject. As, I mean, I agree with what's been said, and there, there is a a role for military action. There there must be, but it needs to be smartly used and articulated with a, a broader policy. I just want to draw attention to another trap that I think that uh, it's terribly important to avoid walking into in, in the aftermath of this sort of horrible event, and that is the uh, a sort of binary approach to um, potential allies or partners in the Middle East, which classifies them either as uh, foes or, or friends, and leads you into what we've done too much of in the past, which is propping up strong men who come to us and say, well, we're the only bulwark against uh, against radical Islam in our part of the world, so um, look our own uh, anti-democratic practices and uh, prop us up, and uh, um, that's the way to combat your terrorist threat. It's actually not. It's the way to uh, ensure that your terrorist threat flows on into the next generation, that even if you deal with ISIS, that there will be another movement, just as ISIS has succeeded al-Qaeda. And, of course, what I'm thinking of particularly here is, is um, the, the way in which um, the West has, first of all, failed to support Morsi when he was one of the more likely products of the of a successful democratic transition from the Arab Spring and has subsequently connived with uh, al-Sisi, who has, um, uh, I think by everybody's reckoning, is, a, is an infinitely more tyrannical figure in Egypt, but um, we are in, in danger if we if we get into bed with guys like that of um, uh, A, being disappointed in the degree of cooperation we can get from them and B, simply fueling the sense across the Middle East that... Um, you know, we are crusaders, and despite whatever we say about respect for democracy, we will um, happily ally ourselves with anybody who presents themselves as um, as uh, anti-Islamic terrorism. Yes, indeed, and uh, President Sisi's counter-terrorism record 
in Egypt, much as he likes to present himself as the, as you say, as the bulwark against uh, the terrorists of Islamic State and elsewhere, his record in Egypt has not been very stellar. Um, and uh, the, the um, as it was, Ansar Beit al Maktis, as it was, the terrorist group in Sinai, which has now um, turned itself into a branch of Islamic State, has been much more active and carried out uh, many more significant attacks um, during the period that President Sisi has been in office than before. So that's a, a, a salutary warning, indeed. Um, but the other thing I think that maybe we should talk about a little bit is the likely effect uh, within Europe on the European political scene. Because um, although I certainly wouldn't want to draw any links between um, this kind of Islamic terrorism and the migration issue, you know, it is nevertheless the case, as you said, that these links will be drawn. Um, there is some evidence that some of the people involved in these attacks and these plots have come in through uh, streams of migration. Of course, there have been plenty of other ways for them to come in, and many of them, in any case, are the majority are European citizens, um, but some have come from Syria in that way. And I think, um, you know, as we become aware of the risks to our societies um, and perhaps the kind of weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the uh, police and intelligence services in different European countries that may both uh, fuel a desire to re-erect barriers between different countries and it may play into the rhetoric of some of the populist um, and anti-immigrant parties. I wonder what... Um, you know, what Manuel would say from Paris about uh, how this will play politically and how, in any case, the political scene has developed in, since the November attacks there. It's, it's striking. Um, so, basically, you have, you have military uh, in most uh, French cities these days, even though you also have French military uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, in the world. Um, but there have been also quite uh, strong discussions, including in the parliament, including within the majority, which is not always the case in the French political institutions, um, on some of the measures uh, that the government has uh, put forward. Uh, I, I referred earlier to the uh, PNR discussion, um, the, the political groups that are reluctant um, to uh, um, quickly adopting that decision at the European Parliament are, uh, amongst others, also the socialist group, uh, and the French government is a socialist one. So there is there are strong discussions, and there is no uh, unanimity on what needs to be done and how to deal with the threat, uh, where to set the balance and how to move forward. Is it just police? Is it more than that? Should we give a bigger, even bigger role in terms of national security uh, to the military? Should we have more authority uh, for the intelligence agencies? Uh, what kind of weapons can the, um, can the police have? What are their rules of engagement? Should we uh, open them a bit, uh, more than a bit? Um, and there is this... Um, debate about changing the constitution uh, to allow for um, longer and stronger state of emergency, 
with restrictions to uh, civil liberty due to uh, security uh, concern, and also to be able to strip some French citizens from their citizenship, from nationality, uh, whether they have another nationality or not, which opened a lot of conversation and discussion about um, precisely the kind of national unity and identity that we want to have in front of that terrorist threat. So do you think that there's going to be uh, a kind of an, yet another surge of support for the National Front and for other parties? I mean, could these sorts of attacks actually be enough to to push um, things to a level where there's not just populist noises being made at the fringes, but people actually choosing governments on the basis of, of the fears around these sorts of terrorist attacks? I would say the surge of uh, support for the Front National um, also comes from uh, many other issues than just terrorism. But obviously, I don't see how that can hurt uh, that can hurt them. It's it's also one reason why the French authorities have been adamant all day long about implementing the decisions that have been made, because one of the key narratives for the Front National is, well, you tell us that uh, we need more European cooperation, more coordination, um, more unity at the European level, but you keep coming back with the same decisions and measures and proposals and nothing happens, which is evidence uh, that uh, Europe uh, does not really help uh, in uh, ensuring uh, national security, uh, people's security, and which is why we think that we need to go for a more national sovereignist approach to, uh, to that. And we need to uh, control borders and close borders and uh, have our own um, uh, security uh, policy and not try to deal with it at uh, at the European level. This so so it's not just going to be the, the problem with Islam, uh, Islam as a threat, jihad as a threat. It's also about Europe being an effective and compelling response to the needs, the immediate needs of the people, or not. And Nick, how do you think it's going to impact on the British referendum? Because there are people tweeting, uh, Alison Pearson, who's a columnist in the Daily Telegraph, um, uh, tweeted as soon as she found out about the attacks that um, the Brussels is the jihadist capital of Europe and that, that we should leave the European Union as a result of that. Apparently, the bookkeepers have shortened the odds on a Brexit. Paddy Power narrowed the odds from seven to four to two to sorry two seven to four from two to one um do you think that this is going to have an impact on the referendum well i think it will um for precisely these reasons there will be a, a strong sense that we we need to pull up the drawbridge and um the dilemma is of course with all these things that we we're perfectly capable if we want to now of scrutinizing very carefully anybody who travels to the uk from um it's not Freedom of movement allows people to come and take jobs in the UK, and that has its own problems, no doubt, and swells our population and does all the other things that people object to about um, about uh, 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 the. Been spending too much time in Sussex, Nick. I'm just uh, I'm situating the the arguments. That, but what what freedom of movement does not mean is that you that you can't ask people come into your country, look at their passports, scrutinise them very carefully, and consider whether you want to. Uh, uh, 
whether you want to follow them or, or, or refuse them entry if they're not from, from European countries. So you can, you can do all these things if you want to turn half your population into, into immigration officers and entirely disrupt the normal pattern of uh, which we've become used to and which we all enjoy and which makes us prosperous of uh, people moving freely around and just having their passports and on you go on case of case of Europe not being read at all. So it's ultimately not a matter of uh, whether we're in the EU or out of the EU. It's a matter of just how much do we want to try to fence ourselves off and will we accept the consequences of uh, of diminished trade, diminished prosperity, diminished ability to uh, have nice long weekends in uh, in Seville or whatever else it is that we want to do. Yes, and yes, uh, the, I mean, this, of course, makes sense rationally. And yet, uh, just in terms of the kind of atmosphere, the, the background against which the referendum will play out, given that security is one of the issues that the Prime Minister has put at the forefront of his campaign to remain in the EU, and then we see uh, a series of major terrorist attacks in European cities that must be potentially uh, harmful, um, you know, even if irrational, just in terms of the atmosphere that it creates. Uh, I entirely agree with that. But, of course, we shouldn't forget that our own, uh, our own terrorist alert stands at, stands at severe, which, is, uh, which means that um, it is assessed as highly likely that a, a further terrorist attack will take place in the, in the UK. And, uh, and pray God it doesn't, but I don't think that depends entirely on the thought that there will be terrorists flooding into the UK across, uh, you know, taking advantage of, of traveling on the Eurostar. I think it's uh, a reflection of uh, what is understood about what is going on in our own communities within the UK. Well, we could carry on for, for much longer, but I think we've covered a lot of the, the immediate issues that the attacks raised. It's a, it's a very uh, sad and shaken uh brussels that uh that i left um this morning um it's very feels very close when these things happen in uh areas that we've all been to so many different times and i think we're all uh particularly shaken at the the way that the pace of these attacks has picked up um and the fact that they could really happen anywhere uh, in Europe, the political foreign policy consequences are going to be enormous. And I'm sure that we're going to be coming back to this issue many, many times. But thank you very much to all three of you for talking us through this. There are links to some of the publications that we've done on the European War on Terror on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast and like the world in 30 minutes please give us a rating or a review on itunes on soundcloud or mixcloud um do let us know uh what you think of the podcast you can always write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu we've also been having some discussions about whether to do a regular slot during the referendum campaign about whether a Brexit is a good idea or not but we don't know whether there's a market for it so if you think that's a good idea do write to me about that as well um, but for now from uh, Anthony Dworkin, Manuel Lefon Rapnoui, Nick Whitney and myself it's goodbye. Goodbye.
The researcher for our podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>